Amen. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. We are in uh, week five of Hosea. Uh, again, Hosea is a minor prophet, not a book that uh, I know that I've never preached through before. Uh, and uh, yet we are taking our time to walk through this. And so we're going to take nine weeks. So we're, we're at the halfway point, uh, at least in about 20 minutes, we'll be at the halfway point of preaching through Hosea. And uh, yeah, so again, minor, not because of, of less significant, but just didn't write as much as the major prophets did. So that is that. Before uh, I jump into this, I do have one, one thing that I want to talk about. Uh, this is uh, Steve, Steve Treichler and, and me uh, when I had short hair. And I, and I meant to get my hair cut this week. I just couldn't, I couldn't find the time. Uh, I shaved. I, well, I shaved. I, I trimmed my mess up. I, I got a whole, you know, and then, and, yeah. So anyways, uh, by raise of hand, how many of you don't know who Steve Treichler is? I'm just, I'm just kind of curious about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I figured. I praise Jesus for that. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean that to be dumb. I mean that because Steve Treichler is my boss. Uh, he's the senior pastor of Hope Community Church. There are three locations. One of them is in downtown Minneapolis, and that's the largest of the three uh, locations. Uh, call them campuses, whatever you want to call them. We, we, we use that word location because we're, we're connected, but we're not, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, there are no strings on me. And I'm trying to do, what is that? Pinocchio? Is that? There we go. Um, uh, but anyways, I, I really appreciate this man. And uh, there, there's a story, I wasn't there for this, but there's a story where he was uh, asked or something was going on and, and some people had known about uh, Hope Community Church and, and what was happening there. And, uh, and, and somebody asked Steve, who's the, who's the senior pastor? What, how, who's, who's the lead pastor there? And Steve said, Steve, Steve Triclett, right? So he's referring to, he's talking about himself. And the person that it was asking about Hope Community Church said, who's that? And, and Steve took that as a win, as a win for the kingdom, that, that Steve doesn't want his name to go out in the community. He doesn't want to see, you know, uh, because of this man, uh, there have been uh, over 10 churches planted in the, in the metro area uh, within the 494, 694 loop, uh, and we're one of them. And if it wasn't for that man, none of us would be here. And uh, I am thankful to call him my boss and my friend. But I think most importantly about that man has been my coach, uh, my mentor. And so I, I put this up there because today is the 25th uh, anniversary of Hope Community Church. 25 years, and, uh, which is really exciting. We, we just turned four. They just turned 25. Um, and our Columbia Heights location, they just turned one. And uh, so we're, we're just learning. We're still figuring this stuff out, but uh, really thankful for for Steve and his humility. Uh, back in the day when I was an intern at Hope, uh, when we would do communion, we would have people posted to, to pray for people. And, and uh, every once in a while, I would get some other people to come up and pray. But every single week, that man would walk up to me and, and he would pray for humility. And, and I believed him, right? He wasn't just, I'm going to impress this intern and pray for humility. No, he, he meant it. Um, and, uh, and I would follow that guy uh, to the end of the earth. And, uh, and hey, there's no, there's, I'm not getting a raise for this. He's not even going to hear any of this stuff, right? So, <clears throat> all right. 25 years, thankful for Steve Treichler. Now you know the name. Uh, he still has the goatee, if you're, if you're curious. All right, let's get into this. Speaking of 25 years, um, I own a Jeep Cherokee that is 25 years. 96 is when that Jeep came out. Uh, 241,000 miles, still running great. No issues whatsoever. That's my baby. The doors are on right now. Um, I've modified it, take the doors off. They're on right now. Uh, 
I love old things. I, I, I love, especially, especially vehicles. There's, there's something about, I think, I think here's why. Here's why. I'll get into the message in here in a minute. Okay, but let me just tell you something. I think I enjoy restoring things or taking something old and fixing it. And I'm not good at it. Okay, you can look at the Jeep and go, this, I think this looks worse than what it did to begin with. But I enjoy it because there's something about, when you're in ministry or anything, if, any, if you're in sales or if you're in uh, uh, customer service or anything like that. If you work with people, the job is never done, right? There's always something, especially for, for me, there's always some sin that I need to work on. There's always something that I'm never, I'm never gonna be perfect in this life. You're never gonna be perfect in this life. And so there's something about cranking a wrench and getting the bolt tight and stepping back and going, huh, it's done. You know, I and mean, there's just something nice about that. And that's how it's been with the Jeep. Uh, in college, I was in a play called She Stoops to Conquer. And uh, there's this old innkeep and, and he uses this line where he says, I love old books and I love old wine. And he's talking with, he's sitting with his wife and he says, and you'll be fond to know that I'm, I love an old wife, right? Uh, it's kind of a joke, ha, 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 ha. Um, and she all gets all, all in a tizzy. But there's these two shows that I, that I, I love watching these kinds of shows, right? Um, Rust Valley Restorers, they're, they're, they're from Canada, eh? uh, and they have all these old rusty cars because they're just sitting in snow all year round, uh, and they fix them up. That's not true. That's, did, you know, did you know that 80% of Canadians live south of Detroit, Michigan? 80%, 80%. We live further north than most Canadians. Just fun fact. All right, taking something old and rusty, fixing it up. There's another one called Rust to Riches. Uh, that one is, is really cool as well, out in California, uh, Gotham Garage. They take these just terrible, falling apart. You're like, how? you can't fix it. There's no engine, half the parts are missing, and they fix it up and sell it for $100,000. It blows my mind. I just enjoy seeing that process. We're gonna see that today in Hosea. See what I did there? We're gonna see restoration in Hosea. But I mean this, I mean full restoration. If you've been with us now the last couple of weeks, we see wickedness, we see adultery, uh, whoredom, right? To use the word that Hosea uses over and over and over again. And then God says, I still love you. And I wanna restore you to a position that was even more prominent and better than what it once was. And so we're going to see that looking at Hosea chapter two, we're looking at just three verses today, 21 through 23 to catch up. If you haven't been here, just to remind you, uh, the kingdom of Israel is split in two parts. And so you've got Jeroboam in the north and you've got Rehoboam in the south looking over Judah. And in Israel uh, up there, Jeroboam puts in two uh, false temples uh, to false gods in Dan and Bethel. And, and, all, and, and it's terrible, right? He puts up these golden calves and says, we're going to worship these golden calves and immediate terrible idolatry that happens. And again, this is just the fourth generation of a king or kings. A massive apostasy and, and idolatry and adultery is the language that God uses, that you are my bride and you've committed adultery. And so Hosea, the book starts, and we've read this verse every week, and, uh, and so we probably have this memorized, like, oh, thanks for letting me memorize this verse. But this is, this is the verse. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so Hosea does this. He, he performs something physically that represents the, the, the relationship between God and Israel, but it's real to him. He's actually marrying a woman who is unfaithful over and over and over again and has several children with this woman. And we look at 
their names. Again, if you remember back last week, we've used this before at, at Lower Town, but this idea of grasp the text in their town. Uh, what Paul mentioned last week, what did, what did this text mean to the original hearers? Well, to Hosea, it meant actually go marry an adulterous woman and have children, right? To the Israelites, it meant you are unfaithful the same way that Hosea's wife, Gomer, has been unfaithful. And so I wanna name these children, real children, blood and death with, wrapped up in this name of a of location called Jezreel. Child number two, you are not loved, lo ruhumah. And child number three, I want you to name that child, you are not my people. And this is to symbolize now to Israel, there's death and destruction and bloodshed, that you are no longer loved, you are no longer my people. And, I, and we're gonna see now that, that shift. So I wanna just read the text that we're doing. This is it, just these few, few verses today. Uh, again, we're, we're in chapter five. Uh, we're just now wrapping up, or sorry, the fifth, fifth week, wrapping up chapter two. And so uh, Hosea says this, in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and all will respond to Jezreel. And I will plant her for myself in the land and I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one, right? Lo Ruhumah. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Let's jump into this now. So I wanna start off by just looking and noticing the I will statements that happen, not just in our text that we just read, but also uh, last week when Paul uh, preached, looking at the I wills there. And that what we see over and over and over again, regardless of the, the promiscuity of, of Israel, of us, it's always God saying, I'm gonna do this, I will do this, I will do this, that when God is working, let him work. That we've left and we've turned our backs on him, we've spit in his face and he says, no, I'm gonna pursue you, that we have to let him work. And I don't mean this, I think sometimes there's this phrase that like, uh, uh, let go and let God. Everyone ever heard that phrase before? I always picture, this is just, this is the insight to this, okay? I picture Sylvester Stallone hanging on a cliff and going, let go, let God, right? And just, <laughs> yes, you are, right? No, it's, that, that took it too far. I took it too far. I took that too far. I'm sorry. <laughs> I always picture, that's what I picture, okay? That's, that's what happens up here. When I hear that phrase, let go and let God. No, that, don't do that. You have to do something. There's a, there's, a, there's a participation that happens, but what happens with us is we have to believe, we have to have faith, we have to trust. That's what we have to do. And so we're gonna see this now in these passage, this passage and looking back at last week, the I wills. Oh man, I'm sorry, I took that too far. John was like, you got any good jokes for us today? I'm like, not planned. And that's, that's what happens. That's what happens when they're not planned. Hosea 2, I will. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. Therefore, I will give her back the vineyards. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. I will abolish from the land these animals and different things. I'm not giving the context of here. I took out some lines there just to show you the I wills. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in a righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. 
In that day, this is where where we just read, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love for the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. We have 10 verses here with 14 of these I will statements. And as Paul mentioned last week, that God woos us again. He he has us fall in love with him again. God is the one who betrothes us again. And then he blesses us again that we're going to see in this text in spite of us, in spite of our adultery, in spite of our unfaithfulness. And this is simply the gospel. Um, in In my premarital counseling, uh, and it was, and as I look around the room, I feel like I've done like half of your premaritals, which is a good thing. It's great. Um, and uh, one, I'm currently in the midst of doing it. And we just talked about this on Wednesday. But this idea that there is a, a forgiveness that happens all the stinking time in, in my marriage, in any relationship, even if you're not married, if you've got a friend, in some point you've hurt each other and their forgiveness needs to happen. Over and over and over. But what what the gospel says, though, within that relationship or my wrongdoing, what does God do? He makes the first move that when I was dead in my sin, right? Not treading water, trying to keep my head above water, hoping I'm doing okay, I'm working really hard. God, save me. Okay, throw me that life preserver. All right, I've got it. Pull me in. No, I am 10,000 leagues under the sea, water in my lungs. I can do nothing. Yahweh, God, has to come to me and breathe breath of life into my lungs. He makes the first move. And then I can then say, oh yeah, I want that life. Or I can say, no, I want to stay under the water. I have to respond, but God makes the first move move. They do the same thing with you. So this, moving on, I, I want to, there's this, uh, there's this song uh, called You Make Beautiful Things by Gunger. Gunger? Is that right? Is that how you say it? I don't know anything about the band. Um, but a beautiful song. I first heard this song, I don't know, a decade ago, 12 years ago. Uh, in New York City, uh, my wife worked for a company called Spread Truth. She was their accountant. And uh, we did this big trip every year to New York City. And uh, they sang this song. And you know, guys know my background. I was like super conservative, only like piano and organ hymns. And now there's this band playing Gunger. And I was like, my mind like, just was blown. I just loved the song, right? And I still do to this day. And I, and I think about this song. You make beautiful things, right? Can a garden come up from this ground? Because we see a lot of this garden talk. Can, can something actually happen, Right? Because think about where we've been. Think about the adultery that Gomer or Israel slash we have as we, remember last week, as we cross the principalizing bridge, as we start to, what does it mean in my context? I commit adultery to God all the time. So think about where we've been. Can anything be done to fix me? Spread truth, um, their, their whole, the whole idea was to share the gospel. That was to, to spread truth. That was the whole, whole thing. And what we would do, they're kind of their, I don't know how to, their curriculum or, or whatever. Think if you're familiar with like navigators or um, what's the other one? Crew. Uh, <laughs> so I, I did not mean that as a dig. I just couldn't remember. Uh, their, their idea was to ask four worldview questions. 
And I, and I truly believe this. I understand I'm a Christian. I understand I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor, right? But, but I really think that Christianity is the only world religion that can ans- actually give a good answer for these four worldview questions. One is, where did this all come from? How, like, how did we get here, right? And you can personalize this. Where, where did I come from, right? Where, how, what is, where, where am I? What is this, right? Where did it all come from? The other one is what went wrong? We look at the fall, right? We look at what, I mean, the world is pretty messed up. And you can ask anybody that. No one's like, I think, I think we're doing okay. I think we're getting better as a, as a species. Doubt it, right? What went wrong? What's going on? And why are we so broken? Why do we hate everybody and anything that doesn't look like us, talk like us, think like us? We hate them. Something's broken. But the next question is, what can be done to fix it? The last one is, what does the future look like? But that third one, what can be done to fix it? And you hear all kinds of answers, education, politics, money, what a fill in the blank. I'm telling you, it's Jesus and it's the gospel. The gospel is the hope of the world. Does it mean we ignore these other things and earthly things that can help people? Of course not. Can anything be done to fix me? Well, let's look at the text again. Can a garden come up from this ground at all? Look at this. I use colors, red and blue today. Look at that. That's a first for me. Look at this at the end of verse 21. So, so in that day, I, going back to 21, in that day, I will respond. Respond to what? In that day, when I betroth Israel again. So in that day, when I make my former wife my wife again, in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord And here's how I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond to the skies. I'm going to sing. And my voice is going to resound throughout the skies. And they, the skies then, will respond to the earth. And the earth then will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. What once was negative and nasty, just like last week in the Valley of Achor, as Paul talked about this, this, this phrase, this name you wouldn't even say and utter, it's going to change. Valley of Achor, Jezreel, these places that were, were not, Israelites weren't allowed to talk about or go to, it's not going to change. It's going to be a good thing. He says, I will plant her for myself in the land. That, that last, the first part of 23 there, I will plant her for myself in the land, reminded me again, I was just in the middle of premarital counseling right now. It reminded me of Ephesians chapter five, that Jesus says, paraphrasing in in, in Ephesians chapter five, because the apostle Paul's writing it, but Jesus and his relationship with his bride says, I'm gonna make a sacrifice for myself. I'm gonna sacrifice in order that I might make my bride holy and perfect so that I can present her back to myself. And here we have Yahweh saying the exact same thing about Israel. I'm going to make the sacrifice. I'm going to make the first move to forgive and to love. In spite and regardless of what you've done, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to plant you. Why? So that you can grow for myself in this land. God moves. He makes the first move even here. He makes a sacrifice for us that we, that we can be loved so we can be planted and we can grow. And just this last phrase there, right? We see this idea of Jezreel being restored, and I will show love 
to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And so we can see that, yes, he can grow something out of this ground, but he makes beautiful things out of the dust. And I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. In the spring, we're going to be actually preaching through this book, and so I don't want to get into this too much, but you're going to hear this again in a couple months. I'm just telling you. Maybe I'll let Paul preach that week, so that way we get something a little different. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. You, every single person in this world, you are not loved, lo ruhamah, you are lo ami, not my people. You're without hope and without God in the world. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, who makes the first move? Jesus does, God does. How do, how do we get brought, brought near? We, we, we act well, we do well, we go to confession, we, we go to communion, we do all these different things. We, we pray a lot, we read our Bible, we go to small group, we, 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 we attend the, the, the national night out, we, we, we go to, to uh, John Blank, the, 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 the thing that I just mentioned, you know, you know the uh, uh, chunk or treat, thank you, make it alive. Trunk or treat, or I go to the chili contest, or I go to the stupid murder mystery, it's gotta mean something, God, we're doing this in the church. He makes the first move. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then this verse 14 is what I want to look at. For he himself is our peace. We had no peace. He is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Who are the two groups? You have Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, if you're reading through your Bible and you come across the word Gentile, it simply means all other ethnicities, ethne. Everything. You have Jews and everybody else. He, Jesus, with his blood, brought the two together. He destroys this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility. And I know if you've been around Lower Town for a while, you've heard this before, but I know a lot of you haven't, so I'm just going to reiterate this. This is a model or a mock-up of the temple. And you can see on the outside there, um, that kind of half-height you know, wall, that little barrier there, and a bunch of little gates that go into that area. That area on the outside of that little gate is called the court of Gentiles. That if you were of any other ethnicity other than a pure-blooded Jew, you could not cross that barrier. And then to get into the temple itself, that bigger courtyard there was called the court of women. And then there was another door that led into the court of Israel. And if you were a woman, you weren't allowed to go into there even if you were purely Jewish. And then even if you were a man, and a Jewish man, you couldn't actually go into the temple. Only priests could go into the temple. And even if you were a priest, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement, one day out of the year could go into the Holy of Holies. There's a lot of limitations here. And that small little wall, though, was called the, in that outside court, was called the Court of Gentiles. I'm a little zoomed up there a little bit. What's interesting, this has uh, been found, this is uh, actually on display in Turkey, that on that wall in Istanbul, on that wall, there were 13 gates and there was a, a, a do not enter sign. And this is what it reads in three different languages. No Gentile, no ethnicity is allowed beyond or past this point on penalty of death. And what does Jesus do? 
He smashes it to the ground and he says, all are welcome. All are welcome. We see this actually demonstrated in Acts chapter 27. It says, in the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple and they stirred up a whole crowd and seized them shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And then they seize him and they try to kill him to the point where the Romans have to step in. An army has to step in and say, whoa, whoa, everyone calm down, right? I know, hey, they broke some laws, not good, but hey, calm down. This is exactly what happens. What happens? Paul, a Jew, takes in Greeks past the barrier and, and it starts a riot. And so this is what Paul is writing about. <laughs> he's been there, he's done that. He's felt people attack him because he broke this command that, that was instituted in the temple. It says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's what he's talking about. Verse 15, how did he do this? by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. I don't do this that often, but I did it a couple weeks ago, and I'm gonna do it again. And that is, I'm gonna, I wanna give two applications, or two gospel applications, and this is the first one. Because I think as, as we look at that, that, that passage, that there are some aspects of it. We look at Ephesians, like, yes, this is, good. this is good news. I've been brought near to the cross through the blood of Christ, and yet, what do I do? I commit idolatry in my heart over and over and over and over in different ways where I have been shown no partiality. That Jesus doesn't love me because I'm a man, doesn't love me because I'm white, doesn't love me because I'm American, doesn't love me because of my social economic status, doesn't love me because of my education. And so I, I just, as I was reading this, I was like, man, but, but I do this. And I'm supposed to be like Jesus. So, so do you discriminate, discriminate based on gender? It's been destroyed. That wall of hostility is gone. What about race, social, economic, education? How about family? Oh, they're married. Oh, they've got kids. Oh, they only have two kids. Well, we have eight kids. I can say that because no one here has eight kids. Well, we raise our kids this way. Well, we let our kids do whatever we want. Well, we have a regiment. Man, it, it's nasty out there. And that has no place in the church. It just doesn't. It's been destroyed. How about region or neighborhood? Last week, Paul joked about neighborhood pride, right? And that's okay. It's okay to love your neighborhood. But it's not okay to say, oh, no, no, we're actually better people <laughs> because we live on X block and you live over there. <laughs> Stop. Stop it or I'll bury you in a box. Who's that comedian? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? All right, forget it. We're gonna move on. Moving on. How about national? My national pride. Hey, I love to be an American. I'm glad. I'm proud to be an American. I am. I don't, I don't shy away from that at all. But if I think I'm superior because I was, by God's good graces, born in New Britain, Connecticut, I'm a fool. How about my political differences? Do I discriminate based on my political leanings? 
I'm about denominational. I think the one that I, I know, I don't think, I know the one that I struggle with most is on, I discriminate based on theology. I look down on people who love Jesus because they don't do it the same way I do it. I mean, how foolish is that? And what God has taught us, what he's explained is that that wall of hostility has been crushed. And now we all together can become near. Gone are those days where we discriminate based on fill in the blank. It's been destroyed. So he makes beautiful things out of the dust, but specifically, I want to get a little, lean in a little bit more on this, that he makes beautiful things out of us. That last maybe application, that section could be applied uh, corporately as a church, as a community, as a neighborhood, as a nation, fill in the blank, whatever. It could have also been applied individually, but I want to, I want to get more individualistic here. I really want to pull on some heartstrings. I want to get a little more personal. Because we've been brought near, because we are called the children of God, that we can act like children. Not like, act, this, that came out wrong. Kids are terrible. <laughs> right? So I don't mean act child, like children in that way. I mean, we get to act, there's a, there's a quote by Tim Keller, a uh, pastor out in New York City, where he says, um, no one dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water except for a child. We have that kind of access. That's what I mean by act like a child, the actual child of the king. That's us, but do we act like it? I wanna just read a couple of verses from Romans then give some application. Romans chapter eight, verse 14 says this, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves that you live in fear again, right? In other places in scripture, there's no slave or free, male or female, Gentile or Jew, Greek or barbarian, that were all brought together through the blood of Christ. But it says, rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption into sonship. And again, we, we talked about this a while ago. Why, does, why do some authors use sonship? Or can it be translated like childship instead of sonship or daughtership? Why, why is it sonship? And, and the apostle Paul does it more than anybody, but he means something here, that women were, had major economic barriers and privileges because of their gender. And he says, no, that's all changing now because of Christ. We have the same status it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. <laughs> Abba simply means in a very familiar way, dad. You may have heard daddy. Can I just, I'm gonna get on my pet peeve. Can I get a pet peeve, a little high horse? The father, the creator of the universe, Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, says, Father. You want to call father, you want to start praying, you say, daddy, okay. I'm just saying, let's just call him by his name, which is father. That's what Jesus gives us. No pappy. The newest one I heard was daddy G. Stop it. Stop it. See, but again, see, again, there's my theological discrimination. All right? So take it or leave it. What happens? We cry out to him. We can actually approach him and say, you are my dad and I am your son. I am your daughter, father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's 
children. And so there's a, a book, a small group Bible study. We've done this in my small group a few times, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's just called uh, The Gospel-Centered Life by a gentleman named Bob Thune, Robert Thune. And I think it's chapter three, I don't remember exactly, but he, he lists, he has this huge list of orphan and son and daughter that when I'm not a child of the king, I act and I behave one way. But if I truly am a child of the king, I should respond and act a certain way, in a different way. But a lot of times, even though I've been redeemed, I've been brought near by the blood of Christ and I've been bought by the blood of Christ, even though I'm a child of the king and I'm a son, man, I don't act like it. So I just put this first one on there and there's a lot, there's a big list here. And I'm just, all my prayer this morning was that I hope that one of these hits some kind of chord with you and you go, oh yeah, that's me. Now here, here's what it is. Orphan lacks a vital daily intimacy with God. Well, you might think, is the opposite side than a son or a daughter would thrive in vital daily intimacy with God. I would wanna spend time with my dad. Wrong. That's not the gospel. That's law and that's legalism. That's how orphans act. To think, oh man, I didn't spend time with my dad today, now I'm in trouble. Here's what a son or a daughter says. Feels free from worry because of God's love for you. There's a major difference in those two. The freedom that we have in Christ. We've been brought near because of the blood of Christ. That I can wake my dad up in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water. We have that kind of access. I don't have to worry Oh man, I wasn't in my, I didn't, I didn't spend time in God's word today. Should you? Yeah, sure. Do you need to? No. We have freedom. Because God loves me and I want to love him back. So there's a big list. So I was going to try to do this and it was taking way too long to figure out the columns. So I just took snapshots of this, okay? This is from the book. And I'm going to try to read these. So the next one, anxious about friends, money, school, grades, etc. A son or daughter is learning to live in daily partnership with God. And some of these you're going to read, you know, I don't see the one for one. It's not one for one. Because what I think Bob is trying to do here is he's trying to say, what's the heart? What is the deeper issue when I'm anxious about my grades or my friends or my money or my school? I can lean on God. That's what a son or a daughter would do. feels as if no one cares about you. Not fearful of God. He's on my team. He adopted me. He chose me. He died for me. Lives on a success-fail basis or <clears throat> feels forgiven and totally accepted. Needs to look good. I don't think this means like, hey, check me out, man. I look good today. That's not what that, this means. This means I need to keep an appearance with other people. I need to act a certain way. I need to work a certain way versus a son or a daughter that has a daily trust in God's sovereign plan for your life. An orphan feels guilty and condemned. Whereas a son or daughter, their first resort is to go to their father is to pray. 
An orphan struggles to trust things to God. A son or daughter is content in relationships because you are accepted by God. The orphan has to fix your problems versus freedom from making a name for yourself. Not very teachable, is very teachable by others, is defensive when accused of error or weakness versus open to criticism because you rest on Christ's perfection. I don't know if I've said this from the pulpit, maybe I have, but I know I say this in my premaritals that uh, when Angela and I first got married, I'm gonna tell you right now, I did not understand the gospel and I'm still learning it. I have to beat it into my head every single day, according to Luther, and I try to do that, but I'm not perfect, nobody is. Only one was perfect. But Angela used to come to me and say, hey, can I, can I say something to you without you getting mad? And my response, what do you think it was? Loving, kindness, gentleness, humility, peace. Oh, <laughs> what now, right? What? Well, I thought, I just asked, could you not get mad? I'm not mad. What? what I do? That's what an orphan acts like. That's what somebody who doesn't understand the, the love and the, and the affection that we have from the Father is. Versus being open to criticism because you rest on Christ's perfection. And I'm not perfect, but I can tell you, and hopefully my wife can affirm this, so maybe she can affirm this, that she doesn't have to have this caveat anymore. She can just say, hey, I, I noticed this. And nine times out of 10, my initial thought is, mm. but it quickly goes into, man, this is the, I, want, I don't wanna keep acting like this to my kids, to my wife, to my church, to people that I love, and most importantly, to Jesus. I don't wanna keep sinning. I don't wanna do it. So yes, I, I actually wanna welcome that. That is a huge, huge difference from at least the way I grew up and I was a Christian that to me, the greatest Christian was the guy who could hide his sins the best. And then all of a sudden people are exposing those sins and I got defensive and mad about it rather than trust the freedom that I have in Christ that's forgiven. It's a big difference. Needs to be right versus able to examine your deeper motives, lacks confidence, able to take risks, even to fail. There's some of you in this room that hate to fail, that you won't even do something if you know you might fail at it. Orphan feels discouraged and defeated versus encouraged by the spirit working in you. Strong-willed with ideas, agendas, and opinions versus able to see God's goodness in dark times. Solutions to failure, try harder versus connect with what Christ has provided. Has a critical spirit complaining and bitterness. This is terrible. Why do we have to do this? What is going on with this? I don't like this. Trusting less in self and even more in the Holy Spirit. Last one here, or last, last page. Tears others down. That person did this, they said that, they looked like this. Aware versus a son or a daughter who's aware of inability to fix life, people, problems. An orphan, a competent analyst of others' weaknesses, versus is able to freely confess your faults to others, that's a difference. Right, I'm gonna nitpick, I'm gonna, I'm gonna point out where they did something wrong, their deficiency, rather than, you know what, Here, here's my problem, let me, let me talk about this with you. Man, it's a difference. 
And again, this can very quickly turn into, if I just do this way or act this way, God's gonna love me more. That's not true. That's not true. God can't love you more and he can't love you less. He died for you so that you would be his child, period. Tends to compare yourself with others versus doesn't always have to be right. Feels powerless to defeat the flesh versus does not gain value from man-made props. And what Bob there is talking about is just legalism, right? Oh, well, I don't do that. I've shared this story before. I had a roommate in college who uh, would not go to a shopping mall uh, because he really struggled with lust. That was, that was his confession. So he made a rule that he would no longer go to a shopping mall. Well, there was a day where I came home, came home, came back to the dorm with some bags from the mall. And, and you talk about judgment. How dare you go to a shopping mall? There are women there. <laughs> I don't gain value from, your, from this prop. That's good for you. That's fine. But hey, buddy, can we work on, on you so you can go to a shopping mall and not lust? <laughs> Needs to be in control of situations and others versus experiences more and more victory over the flesh. An orphan looks for satisfaction in positions versus prayer's vital ongoing part of the day. Looks for satisfaction in Possessions versus Jesus is more and more the subject of conversation. I love that one. I don't do that enough. I'm a pastor. And I don't just go up and start talking about Jesus to people. It tends to be motivated by obligation and duty, not love, versus God truly satisfies your soul. We use that language a lot around here. That we went from I have to, I need to, do I get to? I, I want to. Right, when, you, when you love somebody in any kind of relationship, when you truly love somebody, you don't wake up next to them or you don't wake up and see on your calendar that you're hanging out with your best friend and go, ugh, again? Same person? No, we want that. That's our relationship with God truly satisfies our soul. So just in final application as we close up today is just this idea of, do you act like an orphan or do you live as daughters and sons? There's a massive distinction there. And going back to this passage in Hosea, that you have been brought back, you've been redeemed, you've been betrothed, and you've been blessed in spite of your inadequacies, in spite of your adultery, because of him. And we have been brought near. We've been called sons and daughters. We've been called the children of God. And so as we do every week, we're gonna have a time of communion. There's elements out in the, the foyer. foyer. Uh, it's actually called the nor narthex. I don't know what that, what that means, but that's what it's called out there. Little communion cups. And you feel free to grab one. Uh, you don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, maybe you say, no, I walked in this door. I didn't know what was going on with this Christianity thing. I felt guilty by God all the time, but now you're saying I can be free in Christ? Yes, I would love for you. I would love for you to partake of these elements with us for the first time today. And we get to viscerally taste and remember what it is that Christ did for us as he shed his blood for us 
that because of his sacrifice, that he looks at every single person in this room who once was not a people, and he looks at you and says, my people, my people. He looks at every single one of you and says, you were not loved, and now says, you are loved. Revelation chapter 21, we talk about this a lot as well, but I want to bring this up again. The Revelation 21 says over and over and over again that he, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's how Hosea ends. You were not a people, will be made a people, and those who did not have this God, he will be their God. That's how this passage ends in chapter 2, 23 in Hosea. And the end of the book, the rest of the story tells us that he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. And he, and it says, and behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make beautiful things. I make beautiful things out of the dust. God makes beautiful things out of us. Let's pray as we partake of these elements and lift our voices and hearts in song through worship together. Father, I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for Hosea. I thank you for the life that he lived as an example, as somebody who actually physically had to live this way in order that we could then read his book thousands of years later and say, that's me. I'm Israel. I'm the adulterer. I play the orphan all the time. So God, would you help us all as as our lives are privileged because you have destroyed that barrier, that wall of hostility, and have moved us from death to life, from darkness to light, that we would do the same for others. That we wouldn't treat people as subhuman because of anything that we would discriminate against. Anything. Would you help us with that? And God, because we are your sons and daughters. Now, I, right now, I want your spirit to speak to us in ways that we deliberately do this in ways that we discriminate, in ways that we act as orphans, and that we would trust in you, that we would rest in you completely because you have looked at each and every single person in this room and said, I love you, you are my people, and I will dwell with you, and I will be your God, and behold, I make all things new. God, we praise you for that. I pray now that you would be honored as we lift our, song, our voices through song, as we remember and partake of these elements, the juice which represents your blood that was shed for me, that we've been brought near because of that sacrifice you made. And the wafer that represents your body that was broken on our behalf, the punishment that we deserved. And yet you made a sacrifice to plant us and make beautiful things out of us for yourself, for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name.